Listen as doctors Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan and Nigel Key from UNC School of Medicine discuss long-term monitoring following hemophilia gene therapy. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.isth.org for more information. Hi, this is Steve Pipe, and I'm here again with uh, Nigel Key. Nigel, as you're thinking about the commercialization of gene therapy and having, you know, one or perhaps even two products available, you know, our experience with having new biologic therapies come to this community is there's usually an obligation for some degree of post-authorization follow-up. Um, to look for uh, continued efficacy and as well as for long-term safety issues. What do you think that's going to look like for a gene therapy platform, you know, first time coming to this community? Well, I think, first of all, the issues, as we've discussed on some of the other podcasts, are somewhat unique to gene therapy as a therapy for hemophilia, and the follow-up concerns are different. Um, I think that we are aware of the unlikely but possible outcomes of teratogenicity um, caused by the vector, integration of the vector. Um, I think we need to know these long-term outcomes. We're already getting hints that um, when does the expression level truly plateau? We're talking a year timescales, multiple year timescales, not weeks or months. So I think there's both efficacy and safety reasons that that these patients uh, require long-term follow-up that is unique and different from many of the protein therapies. I think one of the concerns is that many patients, understandably, uh, who go from a lifelong experience of protein therapies to suddenly having 50% sustained factor eight levels, um, will they be lost to the hemophilia treatment centers? Um, This is certainly an issue. My discussion with patients who are experienced in the hemophilia community say that certainly could happen. And I think that we have to be aware of of that possibility we can put into place whatever system we want but we have to understand what will keep the patients i mean some of course will turn up for every appointment that they're ever asked to do but a significant proportion i think will start to live a different life after gene therapy and may not see the tie-in to the hemophilia symptoms that have gone before I, I think we we see a little bit of this, you know, in patients who've been cured of a, a malignancy, for instance, and, uh, you know, do they come back for these long-term follow-up visits? Um, it's probably not a fair comparison for, you know, an acute life-threatening illness like that. However, the infrastructure has been put into place in oncology to do that kind of long-term follow-up over you know, decades to look for uh, long-term uh, implications from their acute therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the hemophilia treatment center, we've been following patients for decades. Uh, it's, it's what we do. 
I'm sure at your center, you've got pediatric all the way through uh, octogenarians now uh, with hemophilia. And so we, we have been doing multi-decade cohort follow-up at our HTCs for a very, very long time. And so I think our patients are at least better integrated and associated with our clinics. And if it came down to just requesting a, a one-year you know, annual checkup to come back to the clinic, even though they're not using infusions anymore, they may not be having any bleeds at all. I, I think there will likely be some still goodwill and just that maintenance of association with, with the clinic because we've trained them in that regard for, for a long time. But I certainly would not fault someone if, if they're five years out from gene therapy, they have levels that are in the normal range, and they're living their life, they're not thinking about their hemophilia, I think it's entirely possible that some of these patients may get lost to follow-up, at least at the hemophilia treatment center. And so I think some platforms that develop that allow patients to be followed wherever they may end up around the world or, or how they move around the country, I think will be helpful. I'm aware of at least um, you know, one uh, U.S. Uh, level registry that's being developed through the U.S. Uh, HTC uh, network. And I'm also aware of an uh, effort by the World Federation of Hemophilia to set up a global registry. Now, the intent there is that the clinicians will be collecting the data from clinic encounters and, and putting it into the database. But, you know, perhaps as time goes on, there will be, if you like, voluntary databases where patients can uh, indicate their experience, you know, multiple decades after. So um, I, I think this is going to be an important part of what we do. And I think we owe it to not the rest of the community to collect this data and reassure them about the safety of the platform, but we, we also have an obligation to the broader you know, scientific and medical community that this is, this is a transformative therapy coming to our field, but it has implications for a lot of other gene therapy uh, programs that are targeting other conditions. So think sickle cell, other hemoglobinopathies, other single gene disorders. Um, so I, I really hope that we will organize at the HTC level, but also that we'll be able to engage the patients. Yeah, I think that, you know, it occurs at two levels. It's interesting. My, some of my discussion with patients has, has been along these lines. And uh, while there is a, this long-term relationship between generally, certainly in the adult community with their hemophilia treatment center, there are also long-term relationships within the community that are outside the hemophilia treatment center. And so I think that we have to think carefully about this in terms of the involvement of patient organizations and so on. And um, this kind of brotherhood that, that, if you want to call it that, with hemophilia that has grown up in many parts of the world, a shared trials and tribulations doesn't you know, maybe more durable, perhaps, in their even their relationship with the hemophilia treatment center. So I think that's important to. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, that the, at the advocacy level, um, this community has been very well engaged, um, very well connected with Congress and with local state officials and with payer groups as well. I suspect, actually, because of what is likely to be a pretty high-ticket item like gene therapy from a payer perspective, there's going to be plenty of room for advocacy around how this gets paid for. 
And uh, maybe that is something that this community will remain engaged around so that uh, patients are not you know, shut out or, or deemed ineligible because of different insurance systems and, and uh, things that are challenging at state levels with funding, etc. So uh, it may be that the shift will, will focus for the, what the advocacy groups need to be doing around this, but I, I think as the, as the data is collected, it will be useful not just for scientific and medical reasons, but also for advocacy. Maybe that's an interesting thing that we haven't really talked about yet is we've had some major transitions occur, particularly for hemophilia A, um, with some novel therapies, including uh, emicizumab. And gene therapy is now going to have to be compared over the long haul against uh, some therapies that produce steady-state hemostasis with pretty low intensity, low burden of administration, and at least from the data so far, some pretty solid you know, clinical outcomes. And uh, I, I think we will be collecting data over the long term to show what do these platforms have to offer. Um, is there really a significant change in the well-being and the outcome for a patient to undergo gene therapy versus doing a, you know, every two week, every four week uh, sub-Q injection, whether it's emicizumab or some other, um, you know, novel therapy that comes along. Mm-hmm. I think it will be, you know, apart from the safety angles and so on and the durability, which is of concern, um, I hope that the longer term outcomes are, you know, as you're touching on the, the quality of life aspects. It's it's notable to me, I think, in the last five years of, you know, as an adult treater with seeing some of the effects of, of these therapies. And I would include some of the bispecific antibody therapies, for example, quality of life. Now, I, by that, I would include things that we never expected to improve in these hemophilia patients, um, up to and including such issues as chronic pain. And we're kind of rethinking, I will tell you, in most of these adults, the what is established joint disease and what isn't. It's really fascinating to kind of see how things that we would would never have predicted would improve with either the bispecific antibody, for example, where there's 24-7 coverage of a different kind, but nonetheless 24-7 coverage and gene therapy in terms of their effects on the patient's well-being and symptomatology. So we're kind of relearning hemophilia, as are the patients, uh, very much so, I think. Um, well, I think we're also relearning how to assess patients in that regard. So there's been several new initiatives with developing patient-relevant and patient-reported outcome measures that are unique and specific to uh, gene therapy. So I'm thinking of the, the Core Heme Project, uh, which was a multi-stakeholder uh, group that came together to develop patient-reported outcome measures that were going to be relevant for patients, and we're going to address this real transformational uh, treatment of gene therapy. I think those measures will, will also be relevant uh, for something like some of these novel subcutaneous therapies as well. So putting new tools in our hands uh, that will be administered through the HTCs, presumably, but primarily reported by the patients themselves. I think 
the story of gene therapy has not been fully told yet. Um, the patients are going to tell us these stories and having some data collected with some validated measures is certainly going to help. But I think it's something that's going to evolve over this next decade as we see the impact of this therapy uh, over a much longer period of time. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.